Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this evening. Thank you for this time you've given us, brief as it may be. Lord, let us come apart for just a few moments, study your word, and through the power of your Holy Spirit, understand it with the minds that you've given us. Please guide our study tonight and be our instructor, for we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Please take out your study guide. Study guide number one, the next world superpower. And you're going to take out your Bibles at the same time, and we're going to go to the book of Revelation. Starting with chapter 1 and verse 1, we're going to start at the very beginning. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. Again, I'll remind you here, the little notation, the little number at the end of the text reference there is the page number for the pew Bible that's in front of you. If you're not familiar with the books of the Bible, that's not a problem. If you just know how to count, that's all you need to do, and go to page 1174 in your pew Bible, or Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 as we begin. The last book of the Bible opens with these words, the revelation of, and what are the next two words? Jesus Christ. Now we'll pause right there. I'm going to be willing to guess that most people, when they think of the book of Revelation as revealing something, it's not Jesus. I'm guessing most people have a picture of end-time events and plagues and disasters and beasts and imagery and the Antichrist and all kinds of scary things. But the opening language of this book tells us something otherwise. It says it's the revelation of whom? Jesus Christ. It's not even a revelation of what? It's a revelation of whom? It's a person, the revelation. It reveals Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, which God gave him, So you notice there's a relationship. God, apparently here, God the Father, gives Jesus Christ this message about Jesus to do what? To show his servants, now this is going to be key, things which must shortly take place. This is a book of prophecy. Not just telling what things were or even what things are at the time of the writer, but to the writer he says, I'm showing you a picture of Jesus which includes Things which must shortly take place. Now, you'll notice in your study guide, it doesn't just have text references. It has opportunities for you to take notes. I would encourage you, bring a pencil or pen each evening. Notice right there, the purpose with the little check mark. Please note this, the very first thing. The purpose of the book of Revelation, according to its own testimony, is to reveal whom? Jesus Christ. That's your first answer. The purpose of the book of Revelation is to reveal Jesus. Far from being sealed, and I don't want to take a show of hands, but I'm guessing that there are some of you in this room that have heard that the book of Revelation is a closed book. It is a sealed book. To me, I find that a little bit ironic. The title of the book is Revelation. means to reveal something. Basically, God is saying, I want to show you something about Jesus, and yet many Christians believe that is closed or sealed book. Far from being a closed or sealed book, look, let's go back at Scripture and what it says about itself. Again, we'll start with verse 1 to cover the same territory, but moving on. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent it and signified it by his angel to his servant, whom? John. John is the human author of the book of Revelation. It was his pen, but it was God's message. Yes? John was the messenger, but the message was from God. 
But now look at verse 2. Speaking of John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony, here it is again, of Jesus Christ to all the things that he saw. Now carefully notice verse 3. Blessed is he who what? Reads and those who? Friends, if you can't even keep up with the reading, as long as you're hearing the reading of it, according to those own book's testimony, there's a blessing there for you. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it. Why is it so important? For the time is near. So again, let's go over our first three answers, these first three keys of Revelation. The purpose of the book of Revelation is to reveal Jesus Christ. Far from being sealed, God promises to bless those who read and hear this prophecy. And notice that Revelation doesn't merely claim to be a good book. It claims to be God's book. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. Now, sometimes when we speak about religious things or spiritual matters, we blithely pass by, oh yes, the word of God. But that's a huge claim. This does not intend to set out creative human authorship. It's not trying to show man's ingenuity of coming up with a really interesting plot twist at the end of a book. It doesn't claim to be man's book at all. It doesn't claim to be a good. There are plenty of books that claim to be good. Classic literature. Things that people are well aware of. Well-read, well-versed people know these books. But this does not claim to be a good book. It claims to be God's book. That is a claim that distinguishes it from every other book you can pick up. But that's the claim that's made right here that this is a message directly from God. Revelation doesn't merely claim to be a good book. It claims to be God's book. I want to focus on a little bit of that tonight. Now, again, we're not going to get through all the book at all tonight. We're just going to introduce ourselves to these concepts. But think about what that means, that something claims to be from God. Because if we can't get past this idea that it's God's book, we're going to read the rest of our time together like this is just interesting reading or good literature. And we can pontificate back and forth. Well, I think it means this and I think it means that. But really never get to a foundation belief that it's relevant or purposeful in our lives. But if, however, it can be demonstrated that God's book is indeed just that, a message from God to us, well, that changes the game. Is this what it claims to be. So we go to our next section, the next key, the Bible's great claim. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, if you can go there quickly, if not, it's right there in the page there. And it also, of course, the page number is given. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, the Apostle Paul writes to his protege about Scripture itself. What does he say about the Bible? He says in verse 16 of chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, all Scripture, how much Scripture? All Scripture is given by inspiration of whom? God. So not just the book of Revelation, but the entire canon of Scripture, according to this writing right here, is given by inspiration of God. 
The word in Greek there that we translate inspiration means breath of, breathed. God breathed out a book according to this. Now, this is a big claim. Now, I'm not asking you to believe this claim yet. I'm just asking you to understand the claim. For instance, I could claim to be Superman, but I'm guessing you wouldn't believe me. And I could give you evidence after evidence, but I'm guessing you, well, I probably couldn't even give you evidence after evidence. Let's be honest. And as laughable as it is that I could be Superman, there are people in this world who think it's laughable that this book is actually from God. But this is what it claims. All Scripture, it says again in verse 16, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. It's good for you. It's useful for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. To what end? Verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Apparently, God wants to have people on the earth and he wants to equip them, so he gives them a message from him. God writes to his people, this scripture claims to be God-breathed. Let's look at one more example. 2 Peter chapter 1. Turn to the right in your scriptures. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21. Again, all of these are being recorded. If I speak too, too quickly, I apologize, but that's why we have technology these days. You can go back and play it in slow motion. First, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21. Last we saw the Apostle Paul. Well, first we saw the Apostle John. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ from God. Then we saw the Apostle Paul. Now we're going to see the Apostle Peter. What does he say about Scripture? 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. For prophecy, which is what we're studying specifically here, God's revelation of his will to humanity, for prophecy never, how often? Never came by the will of whom? There's a popular theory out these days that said, oh, the Bible is just a very elaborately put together book. That there's a piece here and a piece there, and somebody wove it, and there was a, a group of people that got together, and no, 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 no. The Bible itself does not admit any such thing. It says quite the opposite. It says specifically, it never came by the will of man, but how did it come about? But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by whom? The Holy Spirit. Again, the claim not just to be a good book, but to be God's book. So we move on to the next section. Great claims require great what? The bigger the claim, the bigger the evidence required to validate that claim. Yes? For instance, if I claimed to own a vehicle, I don't think anyone here would gasp in disbelief. <gasps> you own a car. Sure, everybody in here probably owns a car or is related to somebody. or something. You got here somehow. Most of you didn't walk. So for me, claiming to own a vehicle is not that big of a claim. But if you were to attest me on that and say, I don't believe you, would I be stuck and be like, I guess I have no way, no discourse now, no recourse against your doubt? No, I could show you the keys, could I not? And then if you were really skeptical, I could take the key fob and show you the car and then click, click, and watch the lights light up or something like that. And if you really didn't believe, I could show you my driver's license and, and take the VIN number and you could go, go to the police. And at this point, I would ask if you were crazy, right? Because you're, you're requiring far too much evidence for far too small of a claim. Does that make sense? You need, you're, you're taking too much evidence for a small claim. 
But if, again, going back to my earlier thing, if standing beside that car that you believe is mine, I then tell you that I am Superman, it's going to take a huge amount of evidence because you've never believed in Superman, have you? You've always believed it's a fairy tale. Friends, there are people who look at the Scripture the same way. It's a fairy tale. It's old wives' tales. It's just figurative. It's, rep- it's, just, it's backwards. It's historical from an unenlightened era. We're now in the postmodern mindset. We're scientific. We're enlightened. We're beyond that. I believe sincerely that non-believers need evidence. They need a reason to believe. And I'll take it a step further for my Christian friends in the audience. I believe that even Christians oftentimes need a better reason to believe than what they do. There are a good number of Christians who take the Bible as the Word of God just because, well, the Bible says it is, so I guess that's it. Or even worse, like, well, I just grew up in a home and everybody kind of believed the Bible. Or everybody, that's a kind of a Christian nation, so I guess, whatever. But that's not how the Bible takes itself. It said this is the very word of God. Now, if questioned about that, many Christians would say, well, you just got to believe. With the assumption belief means there's no evidence to support that belief. But I believe that God gave us brains. Much evidence to the contrary, however, I still believe that God has given each of us brains. And he built us to think and to reason. In fact, the scripture gives us that expectation as well. Look at some of these scriptures we have written here. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. When it talks about what faith is, faith is not blindly stepping off and saying, well, I guess the Bible says so, so we have to trust it. No, 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 no. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the, what's that next word? Evidence of things what? So there are some things that you don't see, yes? But is there evidence to build your faith in what you don't see? Yes. Apparently, he wants you to trust. There are, some th- there are things about God we will never know, we will never quite understand. However, he's given enough, enough evidence that we can trust that when he says something, it's true. Let's look at another one. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18. Again, you can go to it quickly if you're familiar with passages in the Scriptures. If not, right there in the, in the study guide, We have the reference where the Lord says to his people, come now and let us, what is that word? Reason. Give me a synonym for reason. Think. Concentrate. Ponder. Wrestle with. Mull over. He says, come here and let's think. Too many people, friends, have a picture in their mind that God says, when you come into my presence, turn off your brain and just feel. And you'll know I'm real if you sense it in a mystical... No, 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 no. God says, come here and think. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. How about 1 Peter chapter 3? Go to the right into the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. Scripture says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a what? A defense or an answer to everyone who asks you for a reason. 
for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Apparently, if you're going to be a Bible-believing Christian, if you're going to open up to something like, say, the book of Revelation that opens its own line saying that this is a message from God, and they say, why do you believe that's a message from God? And you say something like, well, it said it's a message from God. The story is told of, of, of a man who walked into a diner, and he found on one of the countertops there a napkin. And the napkin said... Someone had scribbled on the napkin with a ballpoint pen. The napkin religion is the one true religion. It says so right here on this napkin. Friends, many people take the Bible like that. Well, I guess it's the Bible because, well, it says it is. I guess it's from God because it says so. God doesn't ask you to step blindly out in the dark. He gives you evidence so that when people ask you, you can give a reasonable answer, logical or why you believe. Let's keep going. Look at the Apostle Paul here. Acts chapter 26, his own personal experience. Acts chapter 26, verses 24 and 25. Paul at this point is in chains, explaining why he's a Christian, giving a reasonable defense. And notice the accusation given to the Apostle Paul against him. Again, Acts chapter 26, starting with verse 24. Now, as he thus made his defense, Festus, that was one of the uh, people holding him in bondage, said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Now, if somebody says you're beside yourself, what does that mean? You're crazy. You're out of your mind. There's you in there, and you have left you, right? You are now over here. You're beside yourself. You're out of your mind. You're nuts. I think your nuts is in a different translation, but it's the same idea, right? Much learning is driving you what? Have you ever, I don't want to ask for a show of hands. Have you ever run into a religious person you think, oh, well, you're nuts. I hope you're not like, yes, I'm listening to one right now. No, no, I hope, hope that's not the case. But this was he was saying. It's like, you're just prattling on about these spiritual things. You're, you're not being reasonable. Look what Paul says back. He doesn't say, yes, that's the essence of Christianity is to release your mind and just don't think. But he said, verse 25, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and what? Reason. Not only is what I'm saying true, but it also makes sense. It's reasonable. It's logical. And friends, as we begin a study, a Bible prophecy, I want you to know that it is reasonable and logical and not a leap of fancy into the dark where you turn off your brain. It's a step into the light where you fully engage your brain from the God who made your brain. Does that make sense? Let's keep going. God... Here, we'll go fill in the blank to keep you on your toes just a little bit. God created you with a brain, and he fully expects you to use it. And again, some of these might be basic ideas, but I promise you there are many people who look at religion as when you go in the door, you check out your brain. I want you to think as we go forward. Now, What evidence do we have that God's book, especially the books of prophecy like Revelation, are at all credible to an intellectual thinking person? 
Well, let's look at a few things. The internal consistency of Scripture lends credibility to its claims. Internal evidence alone lends tremendous credibility to the Bible's claim that it was inspired of God. And what do I mean by that? Well, there's some fill-in-the-blanks, but follow along. The Bible was written in three, that's the number you're going to write in there, three different languages on three different continents by more than 40 authors from all walks of life, including kings, doctors, shepherds, fishermen, etc. And all this took place over the course of over 1,500 years. 1,500 years. Yet through it all, the testimony of the Bible remains clear, consistent, and harmoniously about arguably about the most controversial topic in the entire universe, the existence and will of God. Now, if we were to take a much less controversial subject, let's say, I don't know, cooking or fishing or bird watching, and we didn't have, you know, three different languages. We had one language on one very simple topic. And we took everyone in this room and said, all right, go make a book. It would not turn out that great. Yet there is this concept that, oh, just some people got in a room and had a conspiracy theory and put together the Bible and just made up this whole thing. No, please. Think about this. 1,500 years separates Genesis from Revelation. People on three different continents are speaking different languages. Some kings, some shepherds, some fishermen, some doctors, and all points in between. Wrote about the single most controversial subject in human history, the existence and will of God. And yet from Genesis to Revelation, through all those times, through all those places, through all those individuals, one particularly clear, consistent thread of reasonable truth emerges. It's a powerful testimony that bears the stamp of the divine. It's reasonable to believe in the Bible. But that's just one reason. We're not to the best reason yet. By the way, if just because the Bible says so made something true, couldn't someone believe in another book and say, yes, but my book says so, so I believe this one? How would you differentiate between the winner? If two authors both claim to be representing God, but they have two entirely opposite messages, which one is right? How do you know? I praise the Lord that he anticipated that conundrum. Let's go to our second page here. The Bible's greatest evidence for its own reliability is predictive prophecy. Now, what you might be thinking is, don't we have to get to trust the Bible and then start looking at prophecy? I'm going to flip the script on you tonight. The reason we look at the Bible prophecy is so we can learn to trust the Bible. Okay? We don't look at the Bible to learn to, if we can trust prophecy. We look at prophecy so we can say, hey, the Bible itself is actually trustworthy. Let me demonstrate what I mean here. In fact, God makes this his litmus test. Go to the book of Isaiah. In the Old Testament, Isaiah, chapter 42 this is one of several different examples we could show you throughout the Bible, but apparently God's people, even in those days, were prone to wander away from their creator and start worshiping things that were not, in fact, God. And notice I didn't say worshiping other gods. 
with the implication that there's God and there's some other things that are God too. I said they started wandering away from the one true God to other things that aren't God at all. I want to disabuse your mind if you have this concept. Well, there's God up here, and then there's another God, and then another God, and there's a pantheon of different... No, 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 slow down. God says, I'm the one God, and I'm the only God. Everything else that claims to be God isn't. Another big claim. So how can he back that up? Does he just say, and on this point, trust me? Or does he give evidence to his own divinity? Isaiah chapter 42 Look what we find here, starting with verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. And notice what he says now in verse 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I what? I declare. What's it mean to declare something? To to speak it, to say it, to announce it. He said, old stuff has already happened, and new things before they happen, I'm telling you about them. And new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Now think about this. God claims to be the beginning, the end, the alpha, the omega. Before me there wasn't, and after me there will not be. I am all things, God says. I am the top of the heap, the only true God. And thus, think about it logically, because this is how the Lord asks us to think with reason. If God is the God who is illimitable, is beyond space and time, who can see the future when, of course, no human being can, he should be able to do something that no human being can. Namely, tell us what will happen in the future before it comes to pass. Now, I've seen a lot of things, for instance, in sports. A lot of prognosticating goes on. A lot of fortune tellers and prophesiers come up about what's going to happen in the next few minutes of a game or the next game that comes up, and most of them are wrong. Now, you'll have that one guy who quietly watches, and when something happens, he's like, yeah, I knew that was going to happen. But he never said it beforehand, right? You know, no one has ever, in the history of since it's ever happened, accurately picked the NCAA bracket for March Madness. Do you know what I'm talking about? The NCAA basketball tournament? 64 games? No one has ever, one time, gotten it right, guessed every game correctly. Okay. So much so, that I don't know if you paid attention this year, but there's a very wealthy man named Warren Buffett. You've heard that name, yes? Warren Buffett? I'm looking for a way he's my long-lost uncle. So far, no evidence has come up. But the moment I do, you won't see me here anymore. No, no. But he put the actuarial statistics to the test and opened up a contest and said, I will give $1 billion to anyone who can get a perfect NCAA bracket. That means here's all the teams that are playing, and you pick the winners of each game all the way to the championship, I'll give you a billion dollars. Lots of people entered. By night number two, I don't think there was anyone left standing. Smiling all the way. God says, it's not just about fun and games. I can tell you not just the next moment, the next day. I'll tell you years in advance the things are going to happen, and you just watch 
and see if it bears the divine signature. Look again, the book of Isaiah, chapter 44, just a page or two over to the right. Chapter 44, starting with verse 6, he says it again to his people. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is how many gods? No God. And how can he tell this? Verse 7, and who can proclaim as I do? By the one thing, it's, a, it's, it's one thing to be able to say you know the future, and then when it comes to pass, be like, yeah, I knew that. But that's not how God operates. He says, I will tell it to you before it happens. Then you watch it happen. Then you come back to me with a new level of respect. Who can proclaim as I do, he says. Then let him declare it and set it in order for me, before me. You make a timeline. You tell me what's going to happen. He challenges other gods. Since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to them. Then he says, do not fear, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not what one. By the way, don't you love in verse 8 there? He doesn't say, I am God and I can tell the future. I'm bigger and stronger than anyone. Therefore, fear. He says, therefore, do not fear. I'm on your side in this. I'm telling you these things not so you will be more afraid, but so that you'll be less afraid. Yet it's astonishing to me that even inside the Christian world, people are terrified of going to the book of Revelation or Bible prophecy at all. He opens the lines with, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do not be afraid. And yet there's even Christians who will say, don't go to the revelation. Ooh, I'm afraid. The reason he gave us prophecy is so we don't have to be afraid. And we're going to skip ahead just a little bit here to some things we're going to hit in the other evenings. But as you look at the world around you, are there reasons to be afraid? Absolutely. Think of wars and rumors of wars and disease and, and the chaos in the world and the financial structures and the uncertainty and the moral decline of society and everything seems to be falling apart and people are trembling for fear. And yet God says, don't worry, come to me. Don't be afraid. Now, let's go to the book of Revelation's Old Testament counterpart, the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 2. Now, there are many, many places in the Bible where we could demonstrate that God saw the future, laid it out step by step, and then humanity watched it unfold it's exactly as he said. We go to Daniel chapter 2 because it's in a nice story form and because it's succinct in one little chapter and it gives us an outline that we're going to build on. You will see a theme coming out as we study the book of Revelation that you cannot study the book of Revelation. You cannot study the book of Revelation with any accuracy without going to the rest of the books that come before it. We mentioned that, I believe, in our question and answer session this evening, but if you were to read a book with 66 chapters, except you skipped the first 65 chapters, and went to the very end, it's going to name characters and make reference to plot schemes that you have no reference to whatsoever. 
And then you will be surprised. And when you close the end of that chapter, you say, you know, I don't get it. Of course you don't get it. You know, you skip to the end. You want to know who the, the butler did it, but you don't know any of the characters in the room. Doesn't make any sense, right? In order to get the most out of the book of Revelation, we're going to build our foundation there, but we're going to have to go back and go cover some ground that came before Revelation. Does that make sense? So we go to the book of Daniel, which harmonizes hand in glove with the New Testament prophecy book of Revelation. But Daniel chapter 2. To give you a little background, I'll summarize Daniel chapter 1. Daniel and his friends, you likely know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, even though those were their Babylonian names given to them once they got to Babylon, did not actually grow up in Babylon. They grew up in Jerusalem. They were of God's people, the ancient Jews. Yet, the Jewish people of that time were being, well, let's just say naughty. They were not following God's will. They were going after other idols. They were breaking his laws, and they were not honoring his name. And he says, I'm going to, if you don't repent, let Babylon come over and take you over for a certain amount of time. For 70 years, Nebuchadnezzar, which, by the way, God told them his name before he arose as a king. Nebuchadnezzar, my servant will come if you don't repent and take you away. And that's exactly what happened. But Nebuchadnezzar was a brilliant king. Nebuchadnezzar was a brilliant king. He didn't just run into the new territory that he was trying to overtake, namely Jerusalem and Judea, the home of the Jews where Daniel and his friends lived, and just start killing everyone. Now, he killed a lot of people. But he decided not to kill a certain few people. He said, you know what, before I kill their smartest and their most able and their most fit for office, maybe I should just take them and turn them into Babylonians. Take their best and brightest and turn them into our best and brightest. Look at Daniel chapter 1. If you're already at chapter 2, it's just to the left. Daniel chapter 1 explains this. Look at verse 3. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles. And here's what they were looking for. Young men in whom there was no blemish but good-looking. By the way, what do we know about Daniel? He was a young, good-looking man. That's what they were looking for. Because they wanted to have representatives, the face of the new up-and-coming Babylon. Even though they weren't Babylonian yet. He's like, we can change that. Good-looking, gifted in all wisdom. Possessing knowledge and quick to understand. So they already need to have a knowledge base, but we're going to teach teach them more things, and we want them to be able to assimilate quickly because we're going to put them through a system where they're going to come out Babylonian princes who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. Now, chapter 1 unfolds that the first test given to these men was that they were given new names, they were given new language to study, new literature to read, and a new diet to hold to. And these were things that God had forbidden his children to eat. So Daniel and his friends were faced with a tough test. Is this the hill we're going to die on? They decided yes, and the Lord rewarded their faithfulness. And notice towards the end of chapter 1 how the Lord rewarded the faithfulness of these young men. Let's go to verse 15. At the end of the 10 days, their featured appeared better and fatter. By the way, that's fatter in a healthier way. in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. 
Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them what instead? Vegetables. By the way, apparently God cares how we eat and drink. We'll come back to that much later. It's not the primary purpose, but that's an idea that's in here. Verse 17. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Which leads us to chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Look at verse 1. Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. And notice, these are not God-fearing men. These are pagans. These are diviners. These are enchanters. These are card readers, whatever you want to call, crystal ball gazers. These magicians, astrologers, sorcerers. And he says, come to me. I've had this dream. And apparently, these individuals were on the royal payroll. This is your one job, to do mystical things. I've had a dream. Come in here. Tell me what it means. But again, we said that Nebuchadnezzar was a what kind of man? Brilliant. Let me ask you something. If you had a dream that you didn't understand and you went and described it to someone else, do you think they could give you an interpretation? Sure. Do you think they could give you the right interpretation? No. How would you know? How would you know they're not just making up something crazy to have fun with you or they're actually giving you what it meant? You're like, now slow down. I don't know how to answer that. Nebuchadnezzar said, look, I need to know this dream, and I need to know if you're trustworthy to give me the interpretation of this dream. How is he going to sort them out? Here was his test. Watch what happens. Verse 2. Then the king, uh, I'm sorry, verse 3. They came and stood before him, and the king said to them, I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Now watch carefully. Tell your servants what? The dream. Piece of cake, just tell us the dream and we'll be happy to provide you an answer and we'll make it full of big words and pretty pictures. But Nebuchadnezzar's brilliant. He's like, slow down. And we will give the interpretation. Verse 5, the king answered and said to them, my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation... You shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made an ash heap. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the what? The dream and its interpretation. So what if you went to a friend and told them, I had a crazy dream, and I want to know if you can interpret it for me? They would say, sure, tell me the dream. They said, no, 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 I need to know if I can trust your interpretation. You tell me what a dream was in my head. They're going to say, I have no idea what was in your crazy head. It was your dream. And I would come back and say, yes, but you're supposed to be supernaturally gifted. You know, you never trust a fortune teller if when they pick up the phone, they say, hello, who is it? He's like, I'm paying you good money to do something divine. Now earn your keep. What did I dream?
They answered, verse 7, and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will give its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you, for you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. At this, the Chaldeans, these astrologers, were incensed according to Scripture. They were frustrated. They were mad. Verse 10, then the Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests. He's like, yes, that's why I pay you. It's a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no one who can tell the king except whom? The gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. At this point, the king loses it. He's like, you're telling me you claim to have divine insight, yet you don't have access to the wisdom of God? You're fired. And by fired, I mean I'm going to kill you and your whole family. (laughs) Notice verse 12. For this reason, the king was angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out, and they began killing the wise men, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Notice they had to seek out Daniel. He wasn't at the meeting, but he was going to die. He was going to die because of the meeting. And he gets a knock on the door. Oh, good evening. How are you doing, sir? Oh, actually not really good. I'm here to kill you. Whoa, 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 slow down. What did I do? He's like, well, honestly, in your defense, it wasn't you. It was the other guys, but... They did such a bad job that he's killing everybody associated with the other guys. It's like, we just got here. Yeah, well, it's time to die. It's a bad night. What if what Daniel does here, verse 14? Then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. Which, I mean, think about it from Arioch's perspective. He can tell him anything he wants now. He's going to be dead in just a few minutes. You ever heard, I could tell you, but I have to kill you? He's like, well, I get to kill you anyway, so I can tell you anything I want. So he tells him the whole story, and Daniel's like, wait a minute. They said they can't tell the interpretation because they don't have access to the wisdom of God? Well, let our God, the only true God, take a crack at it. Watch this now. Daniel goes in, and I wish we had time to explore the story more, but the Lord uh, gives him in the night the dream and its interpretation. He goes back before the king. He says, now we can answer you. Notice verse 25. We'll just skip ahead. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. It's one of the funny things in the book of Daniel. They give him the name Belteshazzar. And Daniel just keeps calling himself Daniel. In fact, the whole book is called Daniel. (laughs) It's his book. He can call himself whatever he wants. Are you, verse 26, able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Now, the simplest thing to say would be yes. Let me ask you a question. Is Daniel able to tell the king his dream and its interpretation? No. The only reason he has this information is because he trusts the God who can declare the future. And God gives him this information 
And Daniel has an opportunity to witness for the greatness of God. Verse 27, Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. They were right about that. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions upon your head, upon your bed, were these. Now, notice this. I think this is really cool. It's a little insight here, but look at verse 29. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. Now, remember, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and he wants to know it's what? Interpretation. But in order to trust the interpretation, he needs somebody who can tell him the dream. Daniel goes a step farther. He's like, you know, before you even had the dream, I know what you were thinking about when you went to bed. You know, everybody comes into your presence and says, oh, king, live forever. But even you know you're not going to live forever. But what about your kingdom? What will happen after you? You've built this great Babylon. Will it go on? Will it be the world's greatest empire? Will it be the superpower to end all superpowers? Or will there be another? That's what you were thinking about. You went to bed and had the dream I'm about to tell you. And the interpretation is trustworthy. I'm guessing at this point, by the way, if someone ever told you what you were thinking before you had the dream and then they told you about the dream, you would start to give them a certain amount of, like, credibility. You can see in my head. Praise the Lord, none of us have that ability naturally. There's some stuff I don't want to see in your head. But when Daniel walked into Nebuchadnezzar and said, by the way, I know what you were thinking, here's what it gained him instant credibility. Watch this. He goes on to say, verse 31, You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. Now, I want you to get a picture of this image. It's on your worksheet there, at least an artist's representation of it. I don't know exactly what it looks like, but it's definitely an image of a man standing with these different pieces and body parts. And watch as we go through, and you can compare it to the picture that's there on the worksheet, the study guide. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was what? Awesome. This image's head was of fine what? Gold. This is going to be important as we go on. The image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of... Now, I want you to catch this. This is going to be significant. Literally, we're given here in this prophecy a skeleton of human history, a very basic structure upon which other prophecies, namely in the book of Revelation, will hang the flesh and blood and other material. Yes? Okay? So this is a skeleton structure starting in the time of King Nebuchadnezzar. But he starts off, there's a head, chest and arms, belly and thighs, legs, and then feet. And notice the materials that make them up. Gold for the head, silver for the chest and arms, belly and thighs were made of bronze, the legs were made of iron, also, the feet were made of iron, too. But during the time of the feet, it would be mixed with clay. So you basically have four sections. Gold, silver, bronze, and iron. Yet at the end of the iron, it adds in clay. Right? 
gold, silver, bronze, iron, and then iron mixed with clay. He goes on to explain. You watched, verse 34, while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. So he's watching gold, silver, bronze, iron, iron and clay. And as you're looking at this awesome image, in comes this other rock that was cut out without human hands. By the way, anything that the Bible says was done without human hands was done by God, right? So something outside of the flow of history comes in and smashes it where? On his feet, right? Then what happens? Verse 35. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them is found, and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, I'm guessing at this point, the king's jaw was firmly on the ground. He told him what you were thinking. He went step by step. You saw this dream. Notice he didn't say, I think this is the dream. I'm pretty sure this is what you were kind of. No, no, no. He says, this is your dream. In fact, watch what he says now. Verse 36, this is the dream. This little uh, peasant boy has all of a sudden got some courage in front of the king. Not because of his own strength, but because he trusts the God who knows the future. This is the dream. Now we will tell you the interpretation of it before the king. Notice what he says, line by line. You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. By the way, did you see the brilliance there? You are a king of kings, and the reason you're such a good king is because the real king gave you a kingdom. Kind of strikes at his pride a little bit, right? You're a great king because God allows it. But you are a great king. Verse 38, and wherever the children of men dwell or the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. Watch this now. You are that head of gold. So Nebuchadnezzar or Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom of Babylon is represented by the head of what? Gold. He says, we are here in this image. You're the head of gold. By the way, how do we know he's talking about his kingdom and not just the king himself? Well, just keep reading, which, by the way, 99% of all Bible problems, Bible questions, are resolved by that simple phrase, just keep reading. The Bible interprets itself. Watch what we find here. But, verse 39, after you shall arise another, what? Kingdom. Not another king inside of Babylon, but a whole other kingdom. So what does each body part represent, apparently? A kingdom, not just a king. So these are not four different kings of Babylon. These are four different empires themselves, Babylon being the first one. But now there's 39. But after you shall rise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. Pause right here. In the United States of America right now, we're already jostling about who's going to be the next president. Does anyone know who it's going to be? Slow down. This is as close to politics as I'm going to bring up in any of these lectures, okay? And number two, you might think you know, but I promise you, you don't. You might get guessed because there's only going to be so many candidates. You might be right, but you didn't know, right? But I certainly guarantee you don't know who's going to be president after that one or the one after that. But notice, God doesn't just say the next king's going to be this guy and the next king's going to be, he says the next kingdom. 
And then after that, another kingdom. He's got all kings inside of those kingdoms incorporated here. Kingdom of Babylon, then after you, another one, and after that, another one. He's talking about years into the future, decades, centuries even. Just rattling them off. Kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. Look at verse 40. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as what? Iron. Inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything, and like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Apparently, which is going to be the strongest of the four kingdoms? The fourth one, the one of iron. By the way, you see that represented in the materials used. If you had to choose a weapon, would you have an iron or gold sword? Iron. Now, if you're going to sell it on eBay, gold. (laughs) If you're going to use it in war, iron, right? Notice that the value decreases as you go down the statue all the way down to dirt, right? But the strength from gold to silver to bronze to finally to iron gets stronger and stronger. Decrease in value, but an increase in strength. Watch this. Verse 41. And whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be, what's that word? Notice that nothing's going to overtake this kingdom. It will simply be split into pieces or divided. And that's what's represented by the division of iron and clay or the toes, as it mentions, right? It's going to be split into parts, as hopefully all feet are, right? And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. Verse 43, as you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men as if trying to reunify and reunite this divided kingdom. But they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. Apparently, after this fourth empire, there will not be another world empire that holds together like the previous ones had. Under Babylon, whenever it wanted something, it took it over. Over to the next empire, the next empire, all the way through the legs of iron. The same was said, but after that last kingdom divides, it becomes partly strong and partly fragile, and they'll never reunite to make a solid kingdom once again, according to Bible prophecy. Now notice what's going to happen during that divided time, verse 44. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a what? Kingdom. What do you think in the dream represented the kingdom that God's going to set up? The rock. Cut out without human hands. Verse 44 again. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand how long? Forever. Not your kingdom of Babylon and not the one after you or the one after that or the one after that. But after that fourth one divides, God's kingdom will be set up and it will stand forever. Again, notice the confidence with which Daniel says this. We'll start with verse 45 still. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God, not a great God, but what? The definitive article, the one and only great God, has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is true. What's fascinating is you can take this Daniel chapter 2, this image, this statue, compare it with other pieces of Scripture. In fact, you can go to secular sources. 
Go to whatever Encyclopedia Britannica. Go to Wikipedia if you have to. Google it if you want. And you'll find the sequence of kingdoms given to Daniel through the dream of Nebuchadnezzar is exactly what God said it would be. The kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar was the king of was the kingdom of Babylon. After that, and you can find these in Scripture, the chest and arms of silver represented the combined kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. And we're going to come back later and tell the story of how the Medes and the Persians overtook this great and mighty Babylon. A little warning to you, don't ever let your guard down. (laughs) The enemy was watching, they took it at night, the Medes and the Persians. Then after them came an empire known as the Greeks. They had a prominent king by the name of Alexander the what? The Great. Charging all over the world. Took over. But his kingdom did not stand forever either. Next came the iron legs of the empire of Rome. And since the time of Rome... Nothing has overtaken that empire. Now, did Rome fall? Yes. Was it divided up? Yes. Are there remaining vestiges of the Roman Empire in the world? Absolutely. But there has not been one superpower to take over Rome since it began with its legs of iron. It simply moved into some phases and divided. And we live today not under one united superpower in the world, but with the vestiges of those divided toes of the kingdom of Rome still in play in Western Europe. It's fascinating that God, some 500 years before Jesus was even born, gave to Daniel, through the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, a picture of the entire rest of human history. Think about that, 2,500 years. There's this kingdom, and then this kingdom, and this kingdom, And that fourth one won't ever be overtaken. It will be divided. And in the days of those kings, which, by the way, we're living in the days of those kings, God will set up the next world superpower. And it's not going to be Rome or the Greeks or the Medes and Persians. It's certainly not Babylon coming back from the dead. The next world superpower, according to the Bible, is the kingdom of God, which Jesus Christ will be the king of. Now, before you sit and say, amen, that sounds good, think about what that means. We are living, according to Bible prophecy, in the time when Jesus will come again. This is a sobering thought. It's a fascinating study. Now, why does he let us know this? Is it to keep us afraid? Does he say, I'm going to tell you the future, so you will be afraid? He says, no, 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 do not be afraid. Take a look at our last two texts, and we'll let you go for the evening. John chapter 14. When that same God who can tell the end from the beginning took human form and came as Jesus Christ, the man who died for our sins. In John chapter 14, he started telling his people, his disciples, about some of the things that were going to come up in the immediate future. He was going to go to Jerusalem. He was going to be turned over and betrayed by his own people. They would put a mock trial up. In fact, they would crucify him and kill him. But he didn't tell them these things so that they would be afraid, even though the things themselves might, of their own, be scary. 
the fact that he knows them to tell them should give them confidence in who he is. And this is what Jesus tells them. Look at John chapter 14, verse 29. He tells them why he tells them the future. And now I have told you when, before it comes, why? That, please notice, he didn't say that if it comes to pass. No, no, that's not what he says, is it? That when it comes to pass, you may, what? Believe. Friends, the God of the Bible, the only true God, says, come, let's reason, let's think. I want to give you evidence of my divinity so that when you read my word, you can trust that it's true. And when you go to the book of Revelation, it was written for our time, for upon whom the ends of the ages have come. He says it's the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him so that you don't have to be afraid. Friends, what you hold in your hand tonight is not just a good book, though it's a very good book. It is God's book, His message to the people He wants to see come home. Let me leave you this one scripture, Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews chapter 4, notice what it says about the Bible. And I hope it's your experience as you come to understand it more. It's not old wives' tales. It's not just fairy stories and fairy tales and folklore and old-timer stuff and for the weak and the frail. Notice what the Scripture is according to its own testimony, demonstrated by the evidence of Bible prophecy. Hebrews chapter 4. The Bible says of itself in verse 12, for the word of God is what? Living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Friends, this is not just a good book. This is God's book. And he writes it he gives us evidence that it is his book by telling us the future. He invites us to come and reason together. And in the last book of the Bible, he opens and says, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Friends, you don't have to be afraid for the future. And you certainly don't have to be afraid of Bible prophecy in the book of Revelation. The Lord is inviting us to come. Let us reason together so that we may believe. Let me ask you a question. In all seriousness, has tonight's presentation made sense? Was it logical? You raise your hand if you said, yes, I You don't even have to agree with it. But I at least want you to understand what was said, and it was clear in its articulation, and it was logical from A to B to C. Praise God. Now, beyond that, here's my challenge for you. If it made sense, and if there was a thought stirring in your mind, hmm, they might be onto something. Come back tomorrow night. Because tonight we just laid a little bit of foundation. Tomorrow night we're going to skip to the very last page of the book of Revelation. A message entitled, Watch Out. I think we have it up there on the screen. Watch Out. Signs of Christ's coming. If we are truly living in the time when Jesus says he's going to return, apparently we should be watching for something. Is it just going to be on a Wednesday? Is it going to be at some big announcement? What are we watching for? How will we know when the end is come? That's going to be our subject for tomorrow night. Does that sound interesting?
I hope so. I hope to see you all back. But before we leave tonight, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this evening. Thank you for these people that you brought together, and thank you for being a God who not only knows the end from the beginning, but declares it to us, not so that we can be afraid, but so we won't have to be afraid, and so we can have evidence to put our faith in you. Help us to take you at your word, and yet help us to not blindly just receive, but help us to think as you've invited us to do. As we walk through these Bible prophecies, help us to see Jesus more clearly, for we pray it in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.